Tonight we jump towards the end of the book of Job. We have looked at the first round of each of the friends' dialogue with Job, and we looked at Job's response. And then I commented that really the second and third rounds are more of the same. That's part of the trial that Job has to go through, hearing the same things over and over again and defending himself time and time again. Then we come to this new section in which Elihu speaks. And Elihu is of a somewhat different character than those of the three friends. Elihu views himself as the righteous confronter. Elihu sees himself as God's defender. The friends see themselves as Job's comforters. And in that, there's really a different tenor to the speeches of the friends and the speech of Elihu. The friends are arguing with Job for his good, for his betterment. They're trying to alleviate his trials and difficulties and saying, Job, if you just repent, this can all end. And they really want to be helpful to Job. Uh, It's stated expressly in the opening section that they've come to comfort Job. They've come to encourage Job. They've come to, to help Job. Elihu, on the other hand, is the divine confronter. He's angry. Our text tells us on three different occasions that he is angry. He's upset. And he is wanting to defend the character of God. As he listens, he thinks that God is getting a bad rap through all of this. And he is out to defend the character of God. And so tonight we look at this defense of Elihu of the character of God. Background. It appears that Elihu was a relative of Job. In Genesis 22:21, we find out that Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, and Kemuel, the father of Amram. So Uz and Buzz were brothers. Okay? Uz and Buzz. They're the Amram boys. Okay? And uh, uh, we find out in Job chapter 1 that there was a man in the land of Uz. That's referring to Job. So Job lived in the land of Uz. And it's fairly logical to assume then that he was of the family. He was a descendant of Uz. We are introduced to Elihu in chapter 32, verse 2, under the fact that Eli was an extremely angry young man. But the angry Lord, the son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned. So he's a Buzite, which means he's a descendant of Buzz. So you got the descendant of Buzz, and you got the descendant of Uz, and Buzz and Uz are brothers. So they are distant relatives. But as I say here, Elihu was an extremely angry young man. In verse 2 it says, But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzzite, to the family of Ram, burned. And Eli, Elihu was angry with Job because Job was maintaining his innocence. So in the end of verse 2 of chapter 32, it says, Against Job his anger burned because he justified himself before God. Job has been maintaining his innocence. Job has been saying that he is suffering not because of his sin. And, of course, the friends are trying to argue against that. And 
Job has been unwilling to move from that position. And of course, we know, because we have the heavenly scene of what is taking place, that in fact, Job is not suffering because of his sin. But Elihu, you see, is now upset with Job because Job has continued to maintain his innocence. Then, Elihu is angry with the three friends because they could not refute Job. And his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So, he's mad at Job because Job maintains his innocence and he's angry at the three friends because they can't prove Job wrong. So, he's mad at everybody. So, the next question is, what are we to think concerning Elihu's speech? Is Elihu a good guy or a bad guy? That's an oversimplification. I think Elihu is basically a good guy. But what are we to think about what he has to say? First, God does not make any comment concerning Elihu's speech. So, there isn't a statement. We know definitively about the three friends. Because God has said that they have not spoken to me that which is right. Like Job has. So, God comes right out and says, the three friends blew it. But there is silence concerning Elihu. Now, some have taken that silence to mean, because he's not condemned, like the three friends, then he must be okay. But that is for sure an argument from silence. Uh, Just to say he's not condemned, that's not the same thing as saying that he's approved. So, there's silence about what God thinks of Elihu's speech. Therefore, we must evaluate the speech itself. Okay, so, so we've got to look at the speech to determine is it good? Is it helpful? Is it bad? What do we think about it? Well, number one, once again, we note that three times the text states that Eli, Elihu was angry. We have the general teaching of Scripture that anger does not bring about righteousness. James 1.20, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Okay, so that it, it, it repeatedly tells us that, that he is angered at Job, he's angered at the friends, and he speaks in anger. I think that's a tip-off to us that, that at least his demeanor wasn't all that it should be. Now, it can be argued, and some have argued, that uh, Elihu's anger was a righteous anger. That it was appropriate for Elihu to be angry. He should be angry at what he was hearing. But number four, if Elihu's anger is a righteous anger, then it is misplaced. It is true that God is angered at the friends. Job 42.7 My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. That's God's word to the friends. And it says God is angry at the friends. So that's true. But God is not angered in the same way at Job. So there, at least as it comes to Job, his righteous anger, if that's what we want to call it, is misplaced. That Job hasn't spoken inappropriately, that 
God says that he has spoken what is right. Now, that's absolutely essential. As you, as you read through the book of Job, and, and it's a general hermeneutic principle, that you've always got to look at what God says. And whatever God says, that's right. And there have been a lot of people that have tried to turn what Job has said on its head, except God says what Job said was right. So then we've got to back off and say, well, then what Job said was right. And therefore, Elihu was wrong when he was attacking Job for what Job had said. Number two, Elihu speaks out in anger. So Elihu, the son of Bacchorel, the Buzite, spoke out. A. Additionally, Elihu showed great restraint in not speaking. He did not speak because he thought the elders should speak. So Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years, and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak, and increased years should teach wisdom. So, here is Elihu practicing great restraint, going through three cycles of interaction by the friends and Job. And he sits there and says, I didn't say anything, because I thought people that are older and wiser than I should speak. That's... I think very commendable, as there are commendable things to be had in the three friends as well. And Elihu speaks only after listening to the friends of Job. And there are four qualities to Elihu's listening skills. There are four things that are very exemplary in Elihu's conduct up until this point. Four things about the way in which Elihu listened that we should emulate, uh, that we should seek to practice in our own lives. First, Elihu waited to hear what the friends had to say before he spoke. Behold, I waited for your words. I wanted to hear what you had to say. The scripture says in the book of Proverbs, only a fool speaks before it hears a matter. But there are a lot of foolish people that are willing to jump in before they hear the whole issue, before they hear the, all that has to be said. Elihu said, I waited for your words. Next, Elihu carefully followed the argument that they were making. I listened to your reasonings. So not only did he listen to the words, but he tried to follow the thought process. He said, uh, I listened to what you had to say, and I followed your train of thought. I followed your reasoning." I was right with you. Next, Elihu kept silent while the friends were trying to think about what to say next. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you pondered what to say. So now there are, remember there are three cycles of these speeches where the friend speaks and then Job speaks and the second friend speaks and Job speaks and then the third friend speaks and Job speaks, and then we're back to the first friend again, and second and third, and Job each time, and again, the first man speaks, and then Job, and, and there must have been periods of silence in there. There must have been times of contemplation, of reflection. 
And Elihu says, I didn't jump in. I let you think through what you were going to say. I followed your argument to the end. By the time Elihu speaks, the three friends have finished. I put here, they've rested their case. They're done speaking. And Elihu waits until they're done. That's commendable. And fourthly, Elihu gave real consideration to what was being said. It says in verse 12, I even paid close attention to you. The idea is on hanging on their every word, not only listening to what they said, but trying to understand the circumstances. He, he was really trying to observe all that was taking place. He was looking at the interaction, the dialogue between Job and, and the friends and how they are relating to each other. He tried to understand the situation the best he could. That's certainly very commendable. Elihu's conclusion was that no one really answered Job. I didn't pay close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job. No one who answered his words. Again, here is real listening skills. And he says to the friends, you didn't refute Job. You didn't disprove his hypothesis. And that is that he was innocent. For all your talk, you didn't silence Job. And more than that, no one answered his words. He said, you didn't even really listen to what Job was saying. In essence, you talked right by each other. And boy, does that happen in arguments? Does that happen in, in situations where two people are just talking by each other and, and uh, taking their own position and not really listening to what the other person says? And so Elihu's position is, I've been listening to this whole situation very carefully. And he says to the friends, you didn't even listen to Job. You didn't even consider what he had to say. Number four, his conclusion is, the friends had rested their case, but had failed to prove their case. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, with that, we can understand that in two different ways. First, it could mean that they just gave up. They, they threw up their hands. They, they quit answering Job because he thought he was righteous and they were getting nowhere and they tried each three times. That's nine dialogues and we're getting nowhere. We're just giving up. Or it could mean that Job actually won them over. And that they were satisfied with what Job had to say. I think the first is more likely the case, but it, it really could be either one. B. Elihu begins by declaring why it is right for him to speak. First, wisdom comes not only simply with age, but it is a gift of God. Remember, he says that he shouldn't speak because he was young, so now he's going to justify the fact that he's going to speak even though he is young. So Elihu, the son of Barakal, spoke out and said, I am young in years and you are old. Therefore, I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. 
I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. So just because you're old doesn't make you right, is Elihu's position. And true wisdom doesn't simply come from age. It comes from God. And I think we would agree with both of those premises. And so he says, it's appropriate for me to speak. Next, Elihu gives them all a piece of his mind. So I say, listen to me, I too will tell you what I think. Elihu has to speak. He cannot keep it any longer. He's going to burst. And that's what it means when it says he was burned with anger. I mean, he, he just couldn't hold it in anymore. Verse 17. I too will answer my share. I will tell you my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine. Like new wineskins. It's about to burst. Uh, a beautiful imagery there of, of wine that is fermenting. And as wine ferments, it, it gets more and more powerful. And eventually, if it's in new wineskins, it's going gonna, it's gonna to burst those wineskins. And he said, you know, I've been ruminating on these thoughts and they've just been plaguing my, my mind. And if, I'm going to scream if I don't finally say something. He is so angered by everything that's going on. Verse 20, let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. So in essence, I don't care what you think, he says. I'm not here to win friends. I'm not here to be popular. I'm here to tell you the truth, is Elihu's position. Elihu is sure that he is correct. My words are from the uprightness of my heart. And my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So, he's calling upon the fact that uh, God is giving him insight in this situation. Thus, the defender of God. And uh, he's saying, I'm telling you the truth here. I'm telling you what's right. Eli will teach them all, if only they will listen to him. Refute me if you can. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. So there he's talking about the friends. Okay, if you guys think you're right, then take me on. I'm ready. He's looking for a fight. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me. Keep silent and let me speak. Uh, Then if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. So, Job, uh, you listen to me, and you're going to understand the truth. Here is, I think, the key element in uh, understanding is his speech correct or not. Number three, Elihu, like the three friends, takes the position that Job is unrighteous. That's the problem. There really is no difference in the position of Elihu and the three friends. They all are all working under the same presupposition. And that is that if Job's suffering like this, then he must be pretty unrighteous. So Elihu asked them all to practice the sermon. Then Elihu continued and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and listen to me, you who know. 
For the ear tests words as the palate tastes foods. This is in response to what Job had said earlier. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes its food? Elihu says, I've been listening to you guys. And now he's going to start quoting back the things that he heard. And he's saying to Job, Job, it was you who said that you need to test the words. You need to practice the sermon. So I'm saying to you, you need to practice the sermon. You really need to do what you just said we should do. You said that we should listen to you. Well, then you need to listen to us. Or better, you need to listen to me. Two, thus, they are not to take Job's argument at face value. Let us choose for ourselves what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. So, he's saying now let's look at that statement and decide whether or not we should condemn Job. Elihu's position is that it is self-evident that Job is unrighteous because of the way that he speaks. You see, Job all along has been defending himself and saying, well, well, what, where's the unrighteousness? I don't see it. And again, he's not talking about perfection. But we know that Job is the most righteous person on the face of the earth because that's what God says. And Job says, if you think I'm this huge sinner, then, then where is it? And if we would look at all of Job's speech, he starts talking about the conduct with women, the way in which he handled the poor, the way in which he guarded his mouth. He starts saying, well, look at all facets of my life. Where is this great sin that you're talking about? Where is this incredible unrighteousness that God brought all this down upon me? I don't see it. And that's ultimately what shuts the friends up. Because they don't know how to answer that. Because they've got to chalk that up in Job's account. It's true. Uh, There isn't anything that they can point to that's glaring in the life of Job. So Elihu picks up on that. B. Elihu's position is that it is self-evident that Job is unrighteous because of the way that he speaks. Shall I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up derision like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he said, it profits a man nothing when he is pleased with God. So now, Elihu says, what's his great sin? His answer is, you're talking like an unsaved person. You're talking like an unregenerate individual. You're talking like the world talks. Job, you're not even talking like a righteous person. You're talking like a non-believer. That's the kind of thing that the ungodly person says. Not the godly. So Elihu then defends the character of God. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. So he says, God will not do wickedly, and God will not do wrong. Well, amen to that. We can all agree to that. The three friends can agree to that. Job can agree to that. There's nothing controversial in that. And that's why, if you look at this speech on face value, a lot of it sounds pretty good. But you've got to look a little deeper than face value. The mistaken presupposition is that God will always bless the righteous... 
and never bless the and uh, never bless the unrighteous. Verse 11. The next verse says, "For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way." God is not unrighteous. God will reward you if you live righteously, and God is going to punish you in this life if you don't. It's true that God is righteous. But the presupposition is, if God is righteous, then he's always going to pay you for the good that you've done. And Job's life is a testimony to the fact that that's not true. Sometimes the wicked prosper. Look around you. Uh, That's one of the difficulties in Psalm 78 that the psalmist has to deal with. He says, here is the wicked. They die and there's no pains in their death. They, They seem like they live a charmed life. They're living in houses. They're living in luxury. And they don't even die with a dreadful disease. They just close their eyes and go off into the next world and in sleep. The presupposition is what's wrong. Next, Elihu addresses Job's desire that the friends be silent and God speaks. Elihu asserts that God has spoken to Job, but Job is not listening. At the end of the last speech that we looked at, Job has basically said to his friends, shut up, I don't want to hear any more out of you. And I'm tired of listening to you. And the one I would really like to hear from is God. So Elihu picks up and says, Job, you want to hear from God? You have heard from God. You just aren't listening. Here are three ways that Elihu asserts that God has spoken and Job is not listening. First, God has spoken to Job through dreams. Job 33:15. In the dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Shoal. He says, here is, here is God's provision. He speaks in a dream in the middle of the night to arouse a man to, verse 17, that he may turn aside from his conduct. He speaks in dreams so that people repent. Job had talked about the terrors that came upon him in the middle of the night. How dreadful it was and how sleep departed from him. Job Elihu says, what more do you need? What more do you need? You want God to speak to you? There it is. You're afraid. You're miserable. You can't sleep. That's God at work in your life. And if you would repent, then all would go well. Secondly, God has spoken to Job by means of his suffering. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with unceasing complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his favorite food. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones which were not seen stick out. Then his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who do uh, bring... I think that's dread. If there is an angel as mediator for him, one out of a thousand to remind a man of what is right for him. He says God speaks through pain, through suffering, through misery. Again, repentance, verse 24. Then let him be gracious to him and say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. I have found a way out. It's the same old argument. But he's now just honing it and saying, Job, 
God has spoken to you through your suffering, and you just won't listen. You're wasting away. Your life's a wreck. What more proof do you need? This is God speaking to you. And then thirdly, now God is speaking to Job through Elihu. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Keep silent and let me speak. Then if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. That was in the beginning of his speech, or towards the beginning, verse 33. Now we get to the conclusion of verse 30, uh, chapter 36. Then Elihu continued and said, Wait for a little while, and I will show you that there is yet more to be said in God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar, and I will ascribe righteousness to my Maker, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Whoa. It's not too hard to see that we got a pretty arrogant young man here who's saying, the one who is in perfect knowledge is with you. Job, you want to hear from God. Listen to me. I'm speaking for God. That, that, that really is. I mean, that, 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 is, that is pretty bold stuff. When he's saying, you listen to me as good as listening to God. Uh, God is going to speak through me. Well, God's going to speak for himself. Elihu doesn't speak for God. God's going to speak, and we're going to look at what God has to say. So, my take on Elihu is that though he says some good things, basically he's in the same boat as the three friends. So, what do we learn about that? Well, some observations here in conclusion. First, I think we should learn from this how culturally bound and dependent we are of our understanding of the Word of God. In other words, it was so ingrained in the culture and in the society of the time, in the Jewish mindset, that if you're living a right life, then everything is going to be okay for you. And if you are living a wrong life, then everything is going to be miserable. And there's not a whole lot of difference between that and the health and wealth gospel in the day and age that we live. If you have enough faith, everything will be fine. If you're walking with God, then He's going to bless you financially and prosper you in every way. And if you're not walking with God, He won't. But that was so ingrained in that, in that understanding that none of the friends, including Elihu, could overcome that. They, they couldn't get beyond that presupposition even though it was wrong. And I say to you, there's a great lesson to be learned in the fact that I wonder what it is in our culturally bound understanding of Scripture that we just take so for granted that we're not open to look at any other possibility, any other situation. Uh, We need to exercise a tremendous amount of humility when we go to the Scripture. And not just assume that we know the outcome of what the Word of God teaches. I know what it teaches, therefore. You know, there are certain doctrines we hold, and we may run into a passage of Scripture that seems like it puts that doctrine on its head. So what should we do? 
well, it's simple. We know what, what the doctrine is, so we just glance over that, or, or we just kind of put it to the side, or we just kind of massage it a little bit, and if it fits in with our doctrine, we go on. You know, we really ought to wrestle with passages that challenge what we hold as pretty precious, pretty, pretty dear, and even pretty self-apparent. We ought to exercise humility in coming to the Scripture. Maybe what we've always been taught is wrong. Maybe what my mother taught me wasn't right. Maybe even what you have heard from the pulpit isn't correct. Is it possible? Is it possible that we could be wrong? And I submit to you that it's very possible on a whole lot of issues. Therefore, we really ought to be careful in handling the Word of God that we approach the Scripture not empty-headedly. We want to build upon the knowledge that we have, but we also don't want to approach it arrogantly, as though there's nothing more for us to learn. That uh, the one who is in perfect knowledge is here to, to teach. No, 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 no. Uh, Practicing humility as we encounter the Word of God. The second thing that we learn from this, this passage is how important even the minutia is in the Word of God. You see, Elihu and the friends, there's no question in my mind that they are believers. And they're probably very godly believers. They're Job's friends, and he's going to acquaint himself with people that are of good reputation, etc. They probably sought to live righteously. And these are good guys. They mean well. But they are off base in this one area. But being off base in that one area really affects, you see, their whole life, their approach to life, their understanding of who and what God is. And so, areas of doctrine that we may think are not all that important, really times are. And there is a tendency among some to downplay certain doctrinal positions. The most important thing is you're saved. Everything else doesn't really matter. Well, it does matter what we believe about, about certain things. It's going to impact the way that we live. It's going to impact our understanding of suffering. It's going to impact how we respond to people. It's going to impact uh, our humility. It's going to impact our character. Doctrine is extremely important. We need to get it right. And the friends didn't. Thirdly, there needs to be a balance. Because I talked about the fact that we need to have humility when we come to the Word of God. And we do need to have humility. And we have to constantly ask ourselves, is this in fact what the Word of God teaches? But there's a balance to that. And the balance is, in Ephesians, that we're not to be a people who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We aren't just going to be won over by the last person we talk to. The most persuasive person that we've encountered. But we hold steadfastly to that which is true. What is most remarkable about Job, you see, and the way in which he's handling this trial, is there is absolutely no one 
that is supporting his position. And that is that God must be doing something else here other than just punish me for my sin. And of course we know he is. He's validating Job's character. He's saying to the evil one, have you considered my Job, my, my servant Job? And Satan says, well, take everything he has and I'll curse you to his face. Job doesn't ever curse God. Job stands strong. And he stands strong, not just in a wind that's tossed to and fro. He stands strong in a hurricane. <laughs> He's, he stands strong in a gale. When everything is going against him, and all his friends, in unity, are saying something that is not true, but yet seems powerful, Job maintains his stance. May we have that kind of discernment. May we have that kind of intestinal fortitude to, on the one hand, humbly approach the Word of God, but when we have, to say, you know, that's not what the Word of God teaches. And it doesn't matter how many people say otherwise. We need to stand fast to the Word of God, just as Job does. Weigh our positions. Don't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And we need to practice discernment. Even as we work through the book of Job, even as we think about Ella Hughes' speech, I think one of the reasons that God doesn't tell us what to think about Ella Hughes' speech is so that we would wrestle with that speech. That we would do as Ella Hughes encourages Job to do. Let the palate taste. Let the palate discern. Listen to what I had to say. Weigh it. And I think, from my point of view, when we weigh what Elihu has to say, he's an angry, arrogant young man who thinks he is defending God, who thinks he is speaking for God, but in reality, his zeal and fervor is misguided. He should have been comforting Job. He should have been encouraging Job. He should have been standing up against the friends and saying, Job is right, but he's not there. Let's pray. Our Father, help us as we seek to understand your word. Help us to be humble in our approach to your word. Help us to allow your word to dictate our thoughts, our, our minds. Lord, if we hold a doctrine that we find after reading your word, your word contradicts, then give us the humility to change and to adopt what the word of God has to say. And Lord, uh, also give us strength to hold fast to that which the Word of God does teach and not simply allow people to persuade us differently from what we understand the Word of God to teach. May ultimately our anchor be your truth, your Word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.